you for your prayers over this past weekend as we traveled to Chile with uh, my daughter who's now there teaching on the missionary team in Santiago. I had the privilege of uh, preaching last Lord's Day to um, a sweet assembly of believers in a little neighborhood there in Santiago, Chile, of about 75 people. And it swelled about 150, so it was a big day as um, we were able to meet many people who traveled over, who listened regularly to Wisdom for the Heart, translated into Spanish, and we're looking forward to going back in the summer to Colombia and Venezuela and, and taking every opportunity we can as God gives us health and liberty and direction to do that. And I bring greetings from them to you. What a delightful assembly. I... I uh, asked my secretary to find me a cheap flight for my daughter and I, and she did. We flew from Raleigh to Canada <laughs> and then down to South America. It's a cheap flight if you go that way, let me, let me tell you, but it's about a 15-hour journey. We left Thursday night. I came back Sunday night, and I got to tell you, the trip back, as I watched that GPS map of seeing us literally flying over Raleigh to Canada... If I'd had a parachute, I'd have jumped out because I knew it would be five more hours. Just so glad to be back with you and more passionate than ever to, to deliver the truth as God gives us liberty. A church leader by the name of Jerome wrote a letter to a younger elder in the church, and his letter was dated A.D. 394, and in that letter he bemoaned the lack of qualified leadership in the church. It's not a new problem, by the way. In his letter, he went on to include some rather scathing comments reserved for, in particular, his generation of church leaders that he said seemed more interested in the beauty of the cathedral than in the character of the leader. He wrote, and I quote, "...many build churches nowadays, their walls and pillars of glowing marble." their ceilings glittering with gold, and their altars studded with jewels. Yet to the choice of Christ's ministers in the church, no heed is given. The appointments for leadership were given to the wealthy, the well-connected, the charismatic, winsome leader, rather than to the nature and character of the one appointed. Which is all the more tragic when you think that the church has grappled with this, certainly, since the early centuries. When you consider the role of the elder, the elder is the under-shepherd of Jesus Christ who is the chief shepherd of the church, both local and universal. And Jesus Christ has literally entrusted into the, into the care of men his dearest and most costly, most precious possession, his bride, the church, Redeemed by his own blood. How precious are you? How priceless are you? Men who lead in the church are literally shepherding the bride of Christ who happens to be on her way to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're simply given the care to, to shepherd, to pasture, to feed, to guide, to protect her along the way until she's handed off, as it were, to Christ, her bridegroom. Listen, the more value 
we place on the body of Christ, the more value we will place on the leadership of the body of Christ. I mean, can you imagine any mother or father just going out and, and, and getting some random guy off the street and saying, look, for 20 bucks an hour, would you come to our house and watch our kids? We'd like to get away for a little while. We don't care who you are. We don't care what you're going to be like around our kids. We, we really don't care what you're like. We just need a break. Is 20 bucks an hour okay? What would that tell you? That would inform you of how low the level has been placed upon the lives of those children. You see, the higher the value, the greater the concern for those we entrust with that priceless possession. If you'd come over to babysit back in the early days when our twin sons were about a year old, if you thought you were up to that challenge, I don't know if 20 bucks an hour would be enough. I think it was about $2 an hour back then, three. They deserve more, trust me. But you would be there because my wife trusted you and knew something about you. But you'd still discover when you got there that she'd have the whole evening mapped out for you. When bath time was, and then after bath time, what, what they would drink, and they'd sit in their little chairs, and they'd drink that, that, that more than likely out of their sippy cups, you know, the perfect blend of, of juice and, and Benadryl. I'm just teasing. Um, <laughs> you had that too when you were growing up. Huh? I'll bet. Huh? And, and, and then after that, you know, there, there'd be story time. And by the way, this is the book to read from. And then after that is bedtime. And this boy gets his little white blanket. And that boy gets his little uh, green blanket. And this boy gets Barry Beaver. And that boy gets Michael Monkey. Whatever you do, don't mix those up. The entire evening would be mapped out for the babysitter. Listen, my wife had taken months and months of hard work to get those boys on a schedule. And she wasn't about to let it get ruined in one night of riotous living. There's more to it than that, though, of course. These are our precious children. And we're not going to hand them off to anybody, just anybody, to do just anything they, well, please want to do. Do you think God cares any less about his children than we do ours? God also desires to entrust his precious children to those who will love the flock and warn the flock and guide the flock and guard the flock and teach the flock, literally those who are willing to lay down their lives for the good of the flock, those who are willing to embrace the negatives, the difficulties, and the challenges along with the joys and delights of guarding and guiding the flock. In fact, it's interesting when, when uh, Christ told the church to follow their leaders, there's an interesting text where a nuance of leadership comes out of that much like parenting comes to the surface. The writer of Hebrews instructs the believers in Hebrews thirteen seventy to obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch. They keep watch over your souls. The word translated keep watch literally refers to someone going without sleep. Going without sleep. What loving mother or father hasn't lost sleep over the care of their little child or concern over an older child? Losing sleep is tantamount to being a parent. You never get past that, do you? The older I get, the more I realize I'm going to be a parent. 
for the rest of my life. And they're going to be children for the rest of their lives. <laughs> there is that concern that's built in. And I don't know about you, but I've always had a hard time falling asleep when my children were still out at night. Our two daughters were the last to leave the nest. In fact, our last child, our youngest daughter, is starting college in the fall, and she'll be gone. And she knows, perhaps more than all the others, poor thing, that Saturday night's curfew is just about like any other night because until she's safely home, I have a hard time falling asleep. And I really need to sleep on Saturday night because (laughs) Sunday's coming, and it's the only day I work. Well, I need some sleep. In fact, we were texting last night. She kindly even came home a little earlier than normal. How many parents, especially of older children, have stayed awake at night praying not only for their physical needs but their spiritual needs, the spiritual well-being of your, your children? That's the role of a loving, caring, a spiritually-minded parent. It's as if God is saying, I want that for my children too. Why would he want anything less? I want to entrust my children to leaders who are willing to lose sleep over them to care that much. That, listen, that's how much God values you. Because he just sort of backs up the truck for anybody who thinks they want to lead. And he says, okay, if you're going to do that, then here's who you have to be. And here's what you've got to do. So it should come as no surprise then to us that God delivers to the church a list of some 20 plus standards for those who will lead, those entrusted with the charge of his children. And unless somebody is just adamantly Uh, opposed and obviously suppressing of the obvious truths of God's Word. It's pretty clear to the Bible student that God isn't about to entrust the well-being of His church to just anybody to do whatever they good and well-pleased to do. Now, in our last session, we discussed the biblical roles of the elder, pastor, bishop. Those three terms used interchangeably of the same man, same office, same body of men. We talked about their role of guarding and guiding and protecting and leading and feeding. That's what he does, among other, other things. As a loving, caring, spiritually-minded shepherd, that's what he does. But now we're told, and we're given a lot more information, not about what he does, but who he is. There are two lists in the New Testament about this kind of individual. The first list is 1 Timothy chapter 3, the parallel passage, and that's the longer list, and we'll deal with that when we get there one day, Lord willing. We're going to deal with a shorter list, which is in Titus chapter 1, which basically repeats much of, most of, what Timothy read from the hand of Paul about the same time. So turn to the list of qualifications as Paul writes them to Titus, and let's pick up where we left off at verse 5 of chapter 1. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, 
not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. I mean, you get to the end of a list like that, and every church leader feels something stirring in his soul that sounds something like, I resign. I mean, who, who is who's going to begin to approach this? In fact, if you compare this list with 1 Timothy, you come up with 23 standards or qualifications. And if you include aspiration, if any man aspires, if you consider that uh, equally a, a, a qualification, which, uh, which I do, you're at 24. Who can possibly meet these standards? Especially when the very first qualification so clearly says, above reproach. And, it, and, and by the way, it shows up that way also in 1 Timothy 3. Same order, above reproach. Well, for those of you who are considering the office, and those of you who with me serve, you need to know that I guess if, if you're going to start there, you might as well end there, above reproach. You don't need to read any further, right? Well, the word might be helpful for you to know that Paul uses here, translated above reproach, is a word that does not refer to perfection, but to a pattern. An elder, like any member of the flock, is a fallen sinner. And sinners do what? Sin. But here's the difference. The elder, while not having attained to godly perfection, and no one in the church will until the day of Jesus Christ, but however, here's the difference. He is committed to demonstrating a godly pattern in life. He's willing to submit his life, his activity, his interests, his duties to the list provided to Titus and Timothy for the sake of providing a pattern in living. No elder can claim a, a flawless perfection, but he can pursue faithful progression. And here's the pattern of that kind of progression in Titus chapter 1. And you need to know that the words above reproach just sort of serve as a categorical heading. It's like that's the summary statement, and every qualification that follows is hinged to that opening statement. Everything is connected back to that. He's to be above reproach as it relates to his marriage, as it relates to his parenting, as it relates to his character, as it relates to his public and private lifestyle. Here's the pattern. Here's what you pursue. And why must the elder pursue this pattern? Because his life as a leader is then becoming a pattern for all who follow him. And Jesus Christ takes that very seriously, obviously. Leadership is tantamount to influence. Leadership equals endorsement. The very nature of leadership invites imitation. And you think, well, that's, that's wrong, that shouldn't be. Oh, no, you know, the New Testament certainly doesn't discourage it. In fact, the New Testament not only acknowledges that truth, it unashamedly encourages it. Paul wrote to the believers in Philippians 3.17, Brethren, join in following my example, and not just me as an apostle, note this, and observe those who walk according to the pattern 
you have in us. And I don't know about you, but as a believer, I love to see an older man ahead of me. I love to watch him and learn from him. That's just part of how God has set up the church. We'll find in chapter 2, older women turn around and provide the pattern for younger women. Older men turn around and provide a pattern for younger men. Follow the pattern you have in us. Another text encourages the believer in Hebrews 13, 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. The New Testament doesn't say don't imitate anybody. It says, in fact, do that. The Apostle Peter tells the elders to be an example, 1 Peter 5, 4. Literally a tupas, a, a pattern, a type for the flock to follow. And Paul wrote what seems to be an audacious comment. If you grasp what he's saying, it isn't within the balance of the entire text, but he writes to the Corinthian believers who were in desperate need of a model. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Paul didn't tell them to imitate him just because he was an apostle or a leader. He tells them to imitate him as he imitates Christ. Because you can't see Christ, so Christ has given us leaders, we can see them. So the reason you have this list here in Titus chapter 1 is you basically have a pattern put into print, which is nothing more or less than the character of Jesus Christ, which we all pursue. The reason a leader must pursue this pattern of living is because he's setting a standard for all those who follow him to pattern after him their own lives and their own conduct. And oh, we who lead, it must be nothing less than leading them to follow Jesus Christ. We are imitators by nature, and the New Testament plays on that and encourages that in the right way. All you have to do is look around the world and you know that imitation is part of human nature, right? Madison Avenue has built a, a billion dollar plus industry on the fact that we all basically want to follow in. We, we just want to, we want to melt in and, 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 and we want to fit in. We are by nature copycats. I hate to use that word in reference to me or any of you, but you know what I mean. I read a couple of days ago, in fact, about this. It's on the news. Riot police were called to a mall in Orlando, Florida, to try to control a mob. The mob had gathered, and they were waiting. They were waiting to have a chance to buy Nike tennis shoes. The shoes were a, a limited edition going on sale. At the moment the NBA All-Star Game began, they're also in Orlando, and only then, and when the shoes were gone, that was it. So people were gathering, waiting for the whistle, and riot police were there to keep control. See, these were the shoes worn by athletes they looked up to. Because their models wore them, they wanted to wear them too. And there's really nothing wrong with that. That's our human nature. Humans want to be like people they admire. The New Testament knows that and then sets in this line men who will be patterned after. With that, though, comes the downside, doesn't it? People we admire may not be worth admiring. Imitation is not all bad. Just make sure the people we are imitating are worthy of imitation. 
Well, you have to battle that even with the Madison Avenue mentality. Today, billions of dollars are spent by children under the age of 10. And the mentality of the marketing world goes after them. We have reports now and enough data to know that it is that elementary school child that picks the kind of car their parents drive, the kind of shoes they wear, the kind of lunchbox they carry, the pants and the shirts and the blouses and whatever on them. And so trends are created and fads are established and then rotated around to keep the money flowing. I mean, think about it. Those of you that wear neckties, I see maybe three out there that still do, okay? Those neckties over the years have gone really wide and then really skinny. And then really wide and then really skinny. And then really wide and then really skinny. Why? Because we like variety? No, because the money needs to keep flowing. is isn't all bad. But we have to make sure we're imitating something worth imitating. So you no wonder James the Apostle said, listen, let me recommend to you in the body that not many of you become teachers. Why? Because you're going to incur a stricter judgment. Why? Because your life will be multiplied potentially many times over in the lives of those who've patterned, who've made decisions, who've made allowances, who've determined their lifestyles after yours. And for that reason, Paul then begins with this qualification. Make sure the one leading is above reproach. This word does not denote sinless perfection or even a pristine past. Paul didn't have one. But it does refer to a general assessment, one author wrote, of a man's maturity and reputation. I found it interesting in studying the grammar of this text that this is a compound Greek word. The first part means up, and the second part means to call, to call up, literally. It has the idea of a man not only receiving a high calling, answering a high calling, but it also has the nuance of a high standard, a high level of living, a higher pursuit which with it comes limitations and allowances unique to this role. What came to my mind when I studied the word was the idea of raising the bar, like that high jumper who continually tries to excel higher and higher. That is the heart and the passion of the leader. It isn't what can I get away with, what would be allowed But how high can we raise the bar? To call up can simply refer to raising the standard. And ladies and gentlemen, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but in a world where the standard has all but disappeared for a lifestyle worth imitating, it is more desperately needed than ever. Amen? Eugene Peterson writes these challenging words, there is little to admire and less to imitate in the people who are prominent in our culture. We have celebrities, but not saints. If we look around for what it means to be a mature, whole, blessed person, we don't find much. These people are around, but they're not easy to pick out. No journalist interviews them. No talk show features them. They do not set trends. No Oscars are given 
for integrity. And at year's end, when the list of the 10 best dressed or the 10 best looking is compiled, no one compiles a list of the 10 best lived lives. Our society today is devoid of models. Neither the adventure of goodness nor the pursuit of righteousness gets headlines anymore. The question now isn't, in the mind of Paul, and even with this challenge, where are the perfect people? But where are the people who live lives worthy of being patterned after? Where is the progression and a demonstration of that with commitment and passion? Let me tell you this, beloved. We we are the answer to that. We as a church. The church is the answer to that question that our world is asking now like never before. How am I supposed to live? What's right? What's wrong? What's acceptable? What's not acceptable? What's holy? What's unholy? The church is the answer to that. Every Christian is to be an example in fact, even the younger believers are implicitly challenged by Paul when he, when he writes to young Timothy to be an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, First Timothy 4.12. If the leaders of the church are to be godly because they are being imitated, then that means the ones who are following them will have the same goal in mind. We are all pursuing the character of Jesus Christ. We all have the calling. We all must together raise the bar. That's why the Apostle Peter could write that every Christian needs to apply with all diligence. He's not writing to leaders. He's writing to the believers as well. Add to your faith moral excellence, and to moral excellence, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful. And you can just hear them as he writes that, just the bar being raised higher and higher. Every Christian is to be an example for everyone else. In fact, you're being watched. You may not know it. And I don't mean by me. You're being watched by someone. Some of you have many people who are watching you. Maybe you're a leader out in the community, and there are a lot of people that are watching decisions you make, choices you make, the lifestyle you've chosen. And they're patterning themselves after you because they admire you. Every Christian is to set a godly and holy example. And certainly every Christian leader is to provide a demonstration of progression in this pattern within the Christian community. Now the pattern continues and it begins to get specific. Giving us this categorical statement, having given that to us, he now adds these things that are attached, these qualities that are all attached. And the first one is this in verse 6. If any man is above reproach, that is, in relation to, he is the husband of one wife. You can understand this then to mean the elder is to provide a pattern for living as it relates to his commitment to his wife. He is the husband of one wife. 
Now, does this mean that a single man or a widow cannot be an elder? It does not mean that. In fact, you might notice that Paul doesn't say here that an elder has to have a wife. Paul writes he is to have one wife. So that is, if he is married, and the word if appears in the English text well, if, then this. If he's married, then he must be, literally translated, a one-woman man. It's a wooden translation of this phrase. A one-woman man. Sounds like a country and western song, doesn't it? A one-woman man. Well, the truth is, not many people in the first century would have been singing the tune had it been written. First century immorality was acceptable among married men. It was literally part of the DNA of that culture to whom Paul is writing. Men in the Roman world, if you study the history of the first century, you know that a man kept a legal wife for inheritance issues and for the bearing of children, that is, heirs of the estate. But then he also was openly involved that any apology with mistresses and and slaves and temple prostitutes as religious practices allowed. And I spent more time than you probably wanted in our last session talking about the religious practices of Dionysius. Totally corrupt and immoral. So Paul is writing a radical statement to his culture. Divorce was also rampant in the first century. I believe even more so than today. One man in Rome who lived in the first century left documentation revealing he had been legally married and divorced 27 times. Roman women were said to have dated the years with the names of their husbands. Roman women were said to have been married so many times they wore out their bridal veils. So I don't believe, as we understand this phrase, that Paul is meaning to write here that an elder is to be married to one woman at a time but to one woman. He is to be a one-woman man. That not only speaks of his status, but it it speaks to his attitude and his perspective. And, And you would immediately know then that this idea of that kind of commitment to one woman for life, as long as until death do us part, so to speak, would be just as radical in the first century as it has become in the 21st century. Being a one-woman man is really no longer the part of the DNA of our culture. We happen to live, as I researched this week for this study, we live in a culture where one article said 24 million Americans will have been involved with someone other than their wife or husband this past week. 24 million in a week. One article I read recently highlighted a particular website designed for people willing, and I quote, to kick their vows to the curb for at least a brief period of time. In fact, this website released a cell phone version of the site so no one would leave a trail of evidence on their computer at home or work. And in just one month, one month, 679,000 men and women used that one website to start an affair that one site. In fact, the CEO was interviewed, and I read some of the interview. He shrugged off any criticism during that interview, saying, and I quote him, we're just a platform. 
People, people live like this because their lives aren't working out for them. In other words, there's a good reason. And then he made this chilling comment that I've actually heard twice in the last couple of months. He said, and I quote, humans are not meant to be monogamous. Is that calling wrong right or what? Is that turning everything upside down or what? Humans are not meant to be monogamous. In fact, I was watching one interview of a young uh, woman and she said this in in that uh, clip. She said, monogamy is unnatural. Now, I say that to you and you know as well as I do that if you go out there on the street, more people are buying into that than ever before. Monogamy is unnatural. And what is that the result of? It's a result of generations of evolutionism. We're just animals. We're just animals. And if we're just animals, well, look at the nature, world of nature. You know, my wife and I are are, are watching this one website where an eagle is laying eggs and sitting on them. It's fascinating to watch. And and, and it was interesting because that one male eagle, he he had three eagles. I joked he was Mormon to my wife. But he had had three and finally, I guess, made a decision based on who had the first eggs. That's nature. My dog has no conception of fidelity and monogamy. She's unconverted anyway, but but you know what I mean. No idea, no conception of that at all. That's the world of nature. If we're animals, we just evolved a little further, then why not? Monogamy is unnatural. And the more I thought about that, in fact, I spent quite a bit of time thinking about her and what she said. It struck me that in sort of a twisted way, but in a very real way, she's right. Committed, faithful, covenant love to one person goes against our sinful what? Nature. It runs contrary to selfishness and pride. Faithful commitment to loving your spouse requires dying to self, and self does not naturally lie down and die, does it? It stands up. It demands. It requires. It commands. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians that husbands were to love their wives, to be one woman men, as it were, he writes that to the entire church. And then he adds that caveat, as Christ loved the church. Are you kidding? Jesus Christ died for the church. Jesus sacrificed his personal comforts for the church. That's how he loved her. Jesus suffered humiliation for the church. He gave up his future for the church. He took on the sufferings and sin of the church and made them his own. He intercedes faithfully for the church. He loves the church regardless of response or affection or understanding in return. He longs to be in the presence of the church as she finds her final satisfaction and glory in his kingdom. That's how he loves us. Now you go love your wife like that. We're then called to die for our wives, 
to sacrifice ourselves for her, to take on her sufferings as our own, to remain faithfully committed regardless of affection or understanding return, to suffer humiliation for her, to give up our personal comforts and rights for her, to maintain faithful intercession for her benefit and beyond our own, and then ultimately to long for her final glory and satisfaction in the coming kingdom when you effectively hand her over to her Lord and Savior. If that isn't convicting enough, and I know, men, we're just, this, you know, this is for you. We're going to get to women later in chapter 2, but this is for us here. If that isn't convicting enough, here's the amazing thing. Here's how Jesus Christ loves the church. Even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You want to raise the bar? You want to go even further than the list that I read in corresponding to the nature and sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Loving your spouse is not loving them as saints. It is loving them as sinners. That's exactly how Jesus loves us. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad his love for you didn't, wasn't measured out by virtue of your response? Aren't you glad his love for you is covenant, faithful, fidelity? You don't wake up in the morning and wonder if he'll love you? That's exactly how Jesus loves us. And let me tell you this. That is not natural. Time's up. (laughs) Did you have that go off at noon for a reason? (laughs) Ah, it's a little suspicious. I... I've heard of watches going on, but that was a siren, huh? Oh, I've got more to go here, so we better, we better, we better hurry. Can I, let, let, me, let me tell you something. The elder should be leading the way in this regard. It's one of the qualifications. In fact, it's listed first in 1 Timothy and in Titus. Could that be, could this be one of the reasons why the marriages of pastors and elders are such a target of the enemy? In my research, I, I came across, I, I I can believe it, but then again, I can't. But if you survey the divorce rates in the United States by occupation, occupation, you discover that pastors have the third highest divorce rate exceeded only by that of medical doctors and policemen. And that ought to cause all of us to pray for one another, certainly you for the leaders. And more than ever, it's the reason to understand why this is a qualification that is becoming harder and harder and harder to find, right? The reason we have applied this qualification, as we believe Paul delivers it, to require that an elder cannot be divorced, but actively and presently demonstrating commitment to his wife is simply because his relationship with her is intended to illustrate the faithful vow of Christ to his bride, the church. We believe that God has called the leaders of the church to live out the union of Christ and his church with an unbroken vow, to love their wives for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, to love and to cherish until what? Death do us part. And for those of you who've experienced the agony and pain of divorce, perhaps you were the innocent party and you were abandoned. 
Perhaps you were away from the Lord and you left your wife or husband, but you've since repented. You of all people know how and why to pray for the leaders of the church to stay true. I have many dear friends in this church who can't meet this qualification. And they understand that while they can't fill this particular role, there are many other ministry roles, and they fill them with joy and faithfulness. I praise God for them. And they perhaps know better than anybody that the bar must not be lowered. The pattern must be demonstrated. It must be modeled for this generation that is growing more and more confused. I'll add one more comment before we go on. The issue of monogamy is becoming all the more confusing. Not just the attitude, which I think Paul is addressing, but the state of monogamy, the state of faithful fidelity. One woman, man. I mean, that's becoming a debatable issue now, isn't it? They're being rewritten now within mainline denominationalism. Does Paul really mean that an elder must be a one-woman man? Did he really mean a one-woman man? Couldn't that just be a reference to some kind of commitment, some kind of covenant that could refer now to a one-man man? Or a one-woman woman? I mean, it's hard to believe that I'm having to stand up here and address this issue. This is where we live. Surely Paul isn't just referring to heterosexual marriage. That's exactly what he's referring to. Even Time magazine caught on to the irony of the debate within the church when it reported, and I quote, from Time magazine, denominations that once would not have tolerated a divorced minister are now debating whether or not to accept lesbian ministers. How do we get from there to here? By lowering the bar, by defining the standards according to political correctness and our culture as we shove away and shelve the face value meaning of simple words from God. Frankly, more than ever, it's time to raise the bar. And you're doing that, by the way. You're doing that too, one marriage at a time, one self-sacrificing spousal act at a time, one praying wife at a time, one committed spouse to the Word of God at a time, one couple at a time committed to expressing their love and their commitment to one another, carving out time, isn't that the challenge? Demonstrating Christ's love and service in ever-ready presence and intercession for the bride. Since I'm dealing with the men, I thought I'd throw this in and then we're going to move on, but I wanted to tell you this. I thought it was kind of funny. And Ken Hughes' wonderful little book, The Disciplines of a Godly Man, he's encouraging men to spend time with their wives and to not take that for granted. He wrote, years ago in the Midwest, a farmer and his wife were lying in bed during a storm when the funnel of a tornado suddenly lifted the roof right off the house and sucked their bed away with them still in it. And they just sort of floated around in a lazy circle. The wife began to cry. The farmer called out to her that this was no time to cry. She called back. She couldn't help it. She was so happy. It was the first time they'd been out together in 25 years. (laughs) 
I'm sure that didn't happen, okay? Paul goes on to end verse 6 by adding that an elder must have children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. I want to spend a few minutes here to finish off this verse. The phrase, having children who believe, has created quite a bit of debate over the centuries, as you can well imagine. The verb, having children, implies these children are under his authority. In any culture that can change, in Rome, it could be for life. For us, it might be at the age of 18 or 19 or whenever they move away. Having children, that is literally having them in your and under your authority. Now the problem lies in this adjective, pista, which can be translated actively as believing or passively as in obedient or faithful. In fact, if we collected all the translations in here, some would say obedient, faithful, and others would say believing, as mine does. The word is actually used both ways in the pastoral epistles, which sort of adds to the conundrum. The word certainly refers to a believer or a Christian. In fact, Paul uses it that way in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 2, for masters who are believers. They are Christian masters. Paul also uses the word to refer to faithful men who will find other faithful men to teach them the word that they can teach others also. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Outside the pastoral epistles, the Gospel of Matthew uses it the same way to refer to an obedient servant who does the will of his master. Matthew chapter 24, verse 45. So which is it? Is Paul saying that an elder's children have to be Christians or that an elder's children have to be under control? The only way to determine the meaning of this adjective as either passively interpreted or actively interpreted is the context. That happens often in the New Testament, as you know. I believe, without any hesitation, that the context here is one of submission, not salvation. In fact, throughout this entire list of qualifications, Every one of them is under the power of the elder candidate to pursue and at some point in some way, though not perfectly, to achieve. The salvation of his children is not under his power. That isn't under his ability. Even though every leader in the church would desperately long for and pray for the salvation of his children, that ultimately rests in the sovereign grace of God. No matter how godly, like godly Samuel in the Old Testament, whose sons grew up to abandon God, or an elder in the New Testament who cannot make his children Christians. You can't command it. In fact, no matter how good an example you set, you can't guarantee it. So the issue at stake here as it relates to an elder's qualification is not the belief of his children, but their behavior. And that fits perfectly the context of these qualifications, not only here in Titus, but in 1 Timothy, where the elder is to manage his household well, keeping his children under control. You might write into the margin of your Bible, as I have done next to the phrase, having children who believe, I've written having children who behave. Now, let me add a point here. If, if 
Paul is referring to an elder's children as to those being genuine Christians. If that was the qualification Paul had in mind, he shifts away from the role of the elder and he talks about the state of the children. If they have to be Christians, and they are indeed then genuine Christians, the next phrase that Paul clarifies would be absolutely unnecessary. Notice verse 6 again. They're not accused of dissipation or rebellion. That explanatory clause would be unnecessary if they are genuine Christians. All you have to do is dig a little bit into the meaning of these words. Dissipation was a word used of drunken revelry at pagan festivals. If Paul means to say here that an elder's children have to be Christians, that's all he needs to say. He can put a period there to go on to say, oh, and by the way, they can't have as a pattern of their lives being involved in pagan ritualistic drunkenness. That would be unnecessary. That would be like saying your children must be nice to people and they can't be cannibals. You wouldn't need to say that. If they're going to be nice to people, they're not going to eat anybody, right? In other words, this clarifying phrase at the end of verse 6 further explains that Paul has conduct in mind, not conversion. Whether or not they are saved does not eliminate the father's responsibility to maintain order for those children still under his authority. And by the way, did you notice that the text implies that these children are old enough to go to a drunken festival? They are old enough to now resist their father's authority even though they're still in the home and discredit him in so doing. They can't be as a pattern accused of dissipation. Let's not lower the bar and say it doesn't matter. It does matter. Further, notice, Paul writes these children can't be accused of rebellion. Rebellion, that word Paul uses here for rebellion is used for someone entirely unable, unwilling to be ruled. You reach that point while the child is still under your authority where you lay down the guidelines and the rules and they throw them back in your face and go live the way they want to live. That man has lost his credibility and his ability then to lead in the larger home or house known as the church. It's a word used of someone who refuses to submit to the, to the law of God. It's not a brief period of rebellion, by the way, because children aren't perfect either. They fall too. They sin too. This is a reference to a pattern where they are as a pattern openly rebelling against the standards of morality and civility represented by their father. Before we close here, I remember serving part-time in a church while in Bible college my senior year. This was after my jump-off Baptist church days. This is my last year of college. I was leading the choir in this Baptist church and working with the young people. And I remember not long after taking the job that I would hold only for a few months before marrying my bride and heading off to seminary, I found out that one of the young women in the choir was openly involved with a married man in the community. To make matters worse, I found out she was the daughter of one of the leaders in the church. It had scandalized the choir. 
it was a scandal in the congregation, and I just kind of walked into the middle of it. And, and even though at the time I was, you know, in my early 20s, I believed something ought to be done about it. And the pastor didn't want to do anything about it, and neither did the leaders. When this man was eventually confronted, he not only refused to confront his daughter, but he got angry and berated the other leaders for exposing the issue. And that nearly destroyed the church. It all sort of fell apart when I left that summer. In the words of Paul to Titus, that man would have been unqualified to lead. He refused to exercise his authority over one who needed it most. To deal with sin. To set a pattern of dealing with sin. It would become a pattern for those who followed him in dealing with their own sin. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to raise the bar again. It's time for the church to represent holy living in an unholy, ungodly world. May we all in our marriages, in our homes, if you're single in your pursuit of these qualities as well as those who are widowed, resist the natural pull of the flesh and our culture to lower the bar. Instead, keep it high. Jesus Christ is deserving of nothing less, right? Nothing less than that. The church is deserving of nothing less than that. We believe it, that his love, which is so amazing, demands my soul, my life. Say it with me. My all. God bless you, friends. Mm -hmm. 